Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time to ask God's blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of gathering to sing and pray and read and preach and hear Your Word. It is a great blessing. We're glad that You save us not into isolation, but into the fellowship and blessing of local churches like this one. And so we pray now that you would pour out your spirit on the preaching of your word and on the gathering of your saints here. And you say that you are watching over your word to perform it. So we pray that you would do that now, that you would feed your sheep on knowledge and understanding, that you would lead us in your truth and righteousness for your name's sake. We agree with your word that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So we pray now that you would speak, for your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I want you to think right now about the worst enemy, or maybe just the worst frenemy, that you've ever had. Who is that person who's done you the most wrong, the person that's hurt you the most, either in the recent or distant past? Now, think of that person being so repentant, so contrite, so full of godly sorrow over what they did to you, what they have done against God, so reconciled to God in Christ that you and that person end up walking through those doors one week from now together, reconciled to each other, to have fellowship with one another and with us because they have become a like-minded Christian with you. That thought might seem too good to be true. In fact, it might seem so incredible that it would take you more than just a week or a few conversations. Maybe it would take even a few witnesses to this person's genuineness to convince you that they were for real. Maybe you would be afraid to see them next week. That, however, is just a scenario we encounter right after Saul was converted in Acts 9, verses 19 to 31. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 9, verses 19 to 31. Well, remember that Saul was on his way to Damascus with permission to arrest Christians and to extradite them back to Jerusalem for prosecution for blasphemy. The risen Christ, though, confronts Saul, converts him, blinds him with the light of his glory, sends him to Judas' house in Damascus where Ananias meets him to restore his sight. Saul is filled with the Spirit, he's baptized, he's commissioned to a special ministry all on the same occasion. And now in verse 19, just a few days later, he is associating with the very Christians he intended to arrest. They probably accepted him on Ananias' testimony about his own dream from the Lord and his healing of Saul's blindness. Saul was also baptized there in Damascus, which probably would have been a corporate public gathering of the congregation there. 
So Ananias in Damascus was probably like Barnabas in Jerusalem, vouching for the genuineness of Saul's conversion among the existing disciples there. But before long, Saul was proving it himself by preaching the Christ that he had come to Damascus to persecute and doing it in Jewish synagogues among his former partners in persecution. We pick it up in verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Back to Jerusalem. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he's not simply preaching that Jesus is God, which of course he did believe, He is preaching something even more specific than that. He is preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And that category is important. Where is he getting that? Well, he's getting that category, Son of God, from the Old Testament itself. I mean, Saul's a former Jew. He knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And when Saul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, it changed the way that he read and remembered his Old Testament. God had said as early as Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. The whole nation was God's corporate son. And Paul now understood that Jesus himself is the true and ultimate Israel, the obedient son that Israel failed to be. But then God promised David a son on the throne of Israel forever. And God said of David's son, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father, God said, and he shall be to me a son. And then in Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, God said through David, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And Jesus is that son of God. Son in a special way. Eternal, eternally generated and Son of God as the chosen king of God's kingdom, special representative of Israel, the one who would rule and reign over God's people and defeat their enemies once for all. Jesus is that Son of God, true Israel, David's greater son, the promised king of God's kingdom. Jesus is the son whom the Father speaks to in Proverbs, the son of the great king, learning wisdom and obedience in order to rule in righteousness. He's that son. The content of Saul's earliest preaching then is Jesus' identity as Saul understood it from the Old 
Testament, Son of God. It's Jesus' relationship of sonship to God the Father that Saul proclaimed. That was his message. Jesus is God's Son. From eternity past, entered into human history to rule God's people, to reign over them and to defeat their enemies, to save them from the power and penalty of their sins. And that is why everyone was so amazed and confused in verse 21. Let me get this straight. This guy who is now preaching Christ is the same guy who came here to persecute Christians. Is that what I'm to understand? I mean, they can hardly believe it. But in verse 22, Saul just keeps getting stronger and stronger in his Christ-centered interpretation of preaching the Old Testament. He's becoming such a powerful Christian interpreter and preacher and evangelist and apologist that he's running circles around these Damascus Jews by proving to them that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed priest-king that God had promised to send in the Old Testament. This Jesus is that promised one. He's here. And so Saul is putting these Jews between a rock and a hard place. They cannot refute his arguments, but they're also unwilling to believe him. So he is proving objectively, logically, persuasively from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. But instead of being convinced, the Jews are merely confounded, confused, frustrated, irritated. which, of course, does not bode well for Saul's stay in the city. After a while, the Jews have heard enough. Verses 23 to 25, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. They really want you to know that they want to kill Saul over his preaching. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So the Jews can no longer stand hearing Saul blaspheme God by preaching Jesus as his son, but they can't refute him either. So they try to convict him of a capital offense. So they're watching the city gates day and night, hoping to kill him. And according to Paul's retelling in 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, the Jews apparently enlisted the help of the governor who would have been a pagan. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 11, at Damascus, where he is right now in Acts 9, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This is that incident. Apparently, the Jews had tattled on Saul. He's preaching another king, Jesus. Get him! So the Jews are apparently colluding with a pagan government official to arrest and kill Saul before he can preach Christ anywhere else. So those Jews and law enforcement agents would have been looking on roads into the city through openings in the wall that would have surrounded the city to protect it, but... In ancient walled cities like Damascus, 
people were known to let down food and other goods from openings in the wall. And so the baskets being let down from the city wall would be no big deal. Of course, they usually didn't have people in them. So a basket coming down would have been normal for a Jew or for a cop to see outside of the city wall. And they would have never thought, well, there's a person in there. I better go check the content of that. No, it's, they probably just think, well, there's bread or clothes or something in there. So Saul escapes from Damascus, and he goes to Jerusalem. But that soon becomes like going from the frying pan into the fire. And when he had come to Jerusalem, Acts 9.26, he attempted, keyword, to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him because they did not believe that he was a disciple. And you can hardly blame them. But... Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Saul escapes from Damascus, goes to Jerusalem. He tries to join the Christians in Jerusalem there. He shows up for church. And people recognize him. And they're like, uh, I'm not sitting on the same pew as that guy. I actually want him to sit down front because I don't want to be in front of him. I want to be behind him. I want to keep an eye on him. So you can sit down there and we're going to be behind you and make sure you don't arrest anybody. Or maybe you should just stay out there. Maybe you should just be in the overflow room. But there's not a whole lot of, ah, welcome. Not a whole lot of glad handing of Saul when he shows up in Jerusalem. Because, of course, his reputation among Jerusalem Christians, was worse than his reputation in Damascus. So eventually, Barnabas puts his arm around Saul, introduces him to a few of the apostles. We'll remember from chapter 4 that the apostles thought very highly of Barnabas. That's why they gave him that name, son of encouragement. The apostles gave Barnabas that name. It's a nickname. So Barnabas now uses his own good reputation to help rehabilitate Saul's reputation. That is very kind and a little risky. Somehow, though, Barnabas had done his homework on Saul. I don't know how. Maybe Barnabas knew Ananias in Damascus or some other Damascus Christians who testified to the genuineness of Saul's conversion. Even between Jerusalem and Damascus, it would have been a small world for like-minded Christians in the early days. However Barnabas found out about Saul's conversion and preaching in Damascus, Barnabas goes to bat for Saul with the apostles so that Saul can get in to the church and be trusted and befriended by others. But just like in Damascus, it doesn't take long for Saul to prove himself by his own preaching now in Jerusalem. He's so bold with the Hellenized Jews that they want to kill him too. He's proven his bona fides pretty quick. Yet here again, the plot becomes known, and Saul escapes. So notice, first in Damascus and then in Jerusalem, Christian disciples help 
the very man who previously hated them. They saved the life of the guy who was trying to kill them. But for Luke, Saul's first forays into public ministry are not merely bits of a biographical sketch or even an example for later evangelists to follow. Luke's summary statement in verse 31 puts Saul's first ministry steps into context. So, so, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. This isn't just about Saul. This is about the church. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. So, thus, in this way, it was through Saul's conversion and preaching that the church in these three regions had peace when before it only had persecution from Saul. And the result of that peace was stability, strengthening, consolidation of gains, and exponential multiplying growth, numerical growth. That word for multiply, though, echoes God's Old Testament commands and promises to his people. Remember, he had told Adam and then Noah to be fruitful and multiply. The same Greek word here as is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. Even though what had multiplied on the earth in Genesis 9 was sin and pain, ever since Genesis 3. And God had promised multiplication of descendants again to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the way throughout Genesis. And that promise is fulfilled in Exodus 1-7 where the sons of Israel grew strong and multiplied. They multiplied so much that they scared Pharaoh. That's why he enslaved them. We've got to do something about this Israelite problem. There's, there's a population boom, and it's not the right people. And even though Israel had sinned their way into exile after they entered the Promised Land, God promised in Jeremiah 23, I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Same word. He even said in Ezekiel 36, 37, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to multiply their people like a flock. And here it is happening in Acts 9. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. It's happening as Jesus transforms his greatest persecutor into his greatest preacher. So the point of this whole narrative is that Jesus builds his church. This is not just about Saul. This is about his church. This is about what Jesus is doing for his church in the conversion of Saul. Jesus builds his church by turning his greatest persecutor into his greatest preacher. That's what Jesus is doing in Acts 9. Jesus is the main character here, not Saul. Saul is the one acted upon. You're seeing the results of Jesus' ministry in Saul's life. Turn them right around. 
the one who had authority to lead Christians to Jerusalem for prosecution, is now himself led by Barnabas to Christ's chosen apostles. And then he's led from Jerusalem down to Caesarea to escape persecution as a Christian himself. Ah, how the tables have turned. Who turned them? Jesus turned them. The one who was leading Christians to be persecuted by Jews is now trying to lead Jews to become Christians themselves. The prosecutor now defends the cause he had been criticizing. And so it was that the church had a season of peace for stability and growth in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And you may say, well, so what? So the church had peace. What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with us? What am I supposed to do about that? How am I supposed to feel about that? How am I supposed to think about that? How does that change anything? That's a very good question. I'm really glad you asked. Why should we care that Jesus builds his church by turning his greatest persecutor into his greatest preacher? What is this doing here? What does God want this text to do in you? In us, in the world. Well, I have a few different kinds of applications from our text. Things we need to think differently about, feel differently about, do differently. First of all, we have a gospel application. Jesus alone is the Son of God. That's how this text wants you and expects you to think. Jesus is the Son of God. So we, as a church, proclaim to you what Saul proclaimed in Damascus. This Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, the risen Lord Jesus who met Saul on the road to Damascus, the Jesus who entered human history from heaven, crucified, dead, buried, risen, ascended, this Lord Jesus is God's Son. He is fully God and fully man. He was God's Son before He was fully man, from eternity past. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. He is God's truthful witness sent into the world to tell the truth about God and about us. He obeyed God perfectly in our place and then was killed for our sins under the curse of God's law that we deserve. He was buried under God's wrath. He rose from the dead for his own vindication and for our right standing with God in union with him to be our priest king, to represent us to God, to represent God to us, and to rule us better than we can rule ourselves. So Jesus is not just another world religious leader. He is God incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is king of kings, and he lives today as our mediator with God in heaven, the God-man Christ Jesus. There is no one else to save us from the power and penalty of our sins under the righteous wrath of God. But God himself, the one who was angry with us over our sins, is the one who sent Jesus for just this purpose, to obey the law perfectly that we had broken and to endure its curse completely that we deserved. That is the basic message of this church. If you want to learn more about that, we'd be delighted to talk with you 
about that after the service. We'd be delighted, we'd be delighted for you to keep on coming here and listening to that message and how it is expounded on every page of Scripture. There's also an application here to our evangelism. We proclaim Jesus as God's Son and Christ. So, yes, we proclaim Jesus alone is the Son of God. That's the message of this church. But when we go out, when you go out to speak that message to other people, don't just tell people how Jesus can make their lives better. That's not what Paul does. That's not what Saul does here in the synagogues. He doesn't go out and preach, Jesus can give you a better marriage. Jesus can give you a better bottom line in your checkbook. Jesus can make you a more successful businessman. Jesus can give you a better social life. Jesus can give you more obedient children. He doesn't do that. Don't begin in your evangelism, Christian, with who Jesus can be in relation to sinners and their problems as they define them. Sinners don't know how to define their problems. God, God is the sinner's biggest problem because he's holy and he's sovereign and he's all-knowing. So when we tell other people about Jesus, we need to tell them who Jesus is in relation to God. The objective relationship between God the Father and God the Son has to inform the subjective relationship between Jesus and the sinner. Or else the sinner will never get his relationship right with Jesus. There can be no relationship between Jesus and the sinner or between God the Father and the sinner if there is no prior relationship between God the Father and Jesus as God the Son. Because the relationship that I need with God the Father is as an obedient son. That's what I need. But in my nature, I'm a disobedient son. So I need to be in union with the Son of God who is obedient and whose obedience can be credited to my account by faith alone. And then... And then alone can I be reconciled to God when I am in faith union with the obedient Son of God who used His obedience, gave it up to endure God's curse for my sin on the cross. If I don't understand that that is the relationship, that that's why the Father sent the Son into the world, I'm misunderstanding my relationship to Jesus as God wants me to understand it. Jesus is not my in-this-world problem-solver. Jesus is my eternal problem solver. He is the, I'm going to reconcile you to my father who is angry at you because of your sin, but I took your sin and its punishment in your place on the cross. And I was able to do that because I didn't owe God any penalty myself because I didn't commit any sin. And now I'm going to credit to you my righteousness if you will believe in me and admit your sinfulness. So Jesus is God's son before he is the sinner's friend. And if Jesus is not the son of God, then he cannot be the friend of sinners. Because if he is not the son of God, he cannot perfectly 
obey God's law in your place, which you have broken, and he cannot perfectly endure the law's curse in your place, which you deserve. He must be the Son of God to do those things for you. Only then can he be your friend, the friend that you need. Everything, everything Jesus has done for us is because of who he is in relationship to God as God's obedient son. And the one who took your blame and bore your wrath, as we just sang. There's also a a preaching application here. Distinctively Christian apostolic preaching, preaching like the apostles did in in the New Testament, makes an argument. Christian preaching makes an argument. You see that that's what Saul's doing here. He was proving Jesus is the Christ. That's what Paul's preaching did. That's what Paul was trying to do. That was his aim. That was his goal. The argument of distinctively Christian preaching is to prove from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to believe us, but it is to say that we're making a case from Scripture, Jesus is God's Son. And you need Him to be God's Son if He's going to be your Savior. It is objectively proven and argued before it is subjectively applied or employed. Christian preaching is not designed, first and foremost, to manipulate you into feeling a certain way especially not about yourself. That's how we often want to come to church, right? Preacher, make me feel good about myself. I mean, you... (laughs) I really want you to feel good about yourself, but only in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. No, Christian preaching is designed to convince you into thinking a certain way about Jesus and his relationship to God, and therefore his relationship to you, and yours to him. And this is not brainwashing. It's biblical logic appealing to your mind and heart. What we're saying in Christian preaching is, hey, hey, look at the Bible. Look at your Bible, and you tell us that we're wrong. Look at your Bible. You see how Saul's making an argument. He's proving something from Scripture, isn't he? What's he proving? He's proving something about Jesus. What is he proving about Jesus? He's the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, go back to the Old Testament and see what it means to be the Son of God. Now, we want to persuade you about that. We can't make you believe that. But we want to be up front with, with you. That's what we're trying to do. That's what I'm trying to persuade you. Jesus is God's Son. And that has implications for your life. It is biblical logic appealing to your mind and heart. Real sermons do not just spout platitudes or even principles for living. I'm sure you've heard a lot of that kind of preaching. Ah, here's this principle for Christian biblical wealth. Here's this principle for Christian parenting. Here's this principle for da-da-da-da-da. And pretty soon you just kind of get this impression Christian preaching is really just about making my life in this world better. 
I just got to get better at living. That's not the message of the Bible, not ultimately. Like, yes, the Bible wants you to get better at living. You do need to get better at living. But there's something more important. There's something more eternal. There's something bigger at stake here. Real sermons proclaim truths in order to make arguments about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us eternally. And that means you have to calibrate your expectations for Christian preaching according to what preaching is, not according to what it is not. Preaching is proclamation for persuasion. It is content designed to convince. And only then can it be logic for living. Distinctively Christian preaching is also inescapably offensive to some people. Namely, it is offensive to people who don't think they need a Jesus who is the Christ that takes away their sins by dying for them on the cross and rising from the dead. It's offensive to people who view themselves as basically good and wanting to hear a message at church that tells them that they're basically good and God thinks they're basically good and you're just really your own worst critic. You're not your own worst critic. As I once heard a very good preacher say, God is your worst critic. And it makes those people mad who don't want to hear that before they hear, ah, yes, but this same God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take your judgment and your condemnation in your place for your sins on his cross. And the offensiveness of this message is why some churches today want to repeat the mantra of being inoffensive so that they make people feel comfortable in church. Everything becomes designed and calibrated in the church experience to make you, as a visitor, feel comfortable. Oh, is that what Saul was doing in the Damascus synagogues? Making Jews feel comfortable with Jesus. Preaching sermons that offended no one. I mean, is that why people wanted to kill Saul as a newly minted apostolic preacher? Because he was trying to make him feel comfortable? We don't want to offend you for no reason at all. We're not trying to offend you. <laughs> we don't want you to be offended. But you cannot be afraid to offend modern sensibilities any more than Saul was afraid to offend ancient ones. Sin is sin. Truth is truth. God is God. Jesus is the Christ. Hell is real. We deserve it. And no one is good enough to avoid it without trusting that Jesus alone is good enough to enable you to avoid it. There's also a cultural application here. Judaism and Christianity are different religions altogether. Judaism and Christianity are different religions altogether. So if you are inclined to think that all religions are basically the same, we want to think about that with you briefly. Judaism is monistic. 
It's not triune God. It's just God. God the Father. That's it. Just God. Jesus is not God's son in Orthodox Judaism. Jesus is not the second person of the Trinity in Orthodox Judaism. That's why they wanted to kill Paul when he started preaching Christ. But in Christianity, God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God does not have an eternal divine Son in Judaism. God does have an eternal divine Son in Christianity. These ideas of God are mutually exclusive. In other words, you cannot believe different things about the nature and being of God and yet still have the same God or even similar religions as a result. They are organically related. That's true. The Old Testament is bound together with the New Testament. But unless you interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament, you've got two different religions. Christianity is the full and intended flowering of Judaism. But Christianity challenges the monistic nature of Orthodox Jewish faith. So the upshot is that all the world religions cannot be basically saying the same things. Ask any Jew, ask any Buddhist, ask any Muslim if their religions are basically the same as each other or the same as Christianity. They will be offended you even asked the question, much less that you assumed that you knew the answer. The world religions are not all different paths to the same God or different ways of thinking about the same God. The triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is only the God of the whole Christian Bible, Genesis to Revelation. He is not the God of Orthodox Judaism or Islam, even though Judaism or Islam claim to be Abrahamic religions. Jesus is not the Son of God in Islam. And therefore, Allah is not the same God as Yahweh. And you cannot say that Muslims and Jews and Christians all worship the same God, no matter what Christian campus you may have heard that on. The same Jesus cannot be both God's eternal divine Son and not God's eternal divine Son at the same time and in the same way. That's impossible. Only Christians worship the triune God. And in Buddhism, like in Eastern mysticism and New Age spirituality, the divine is not even a personal being at all. It's a state of being an ideal existentialism, nirvana, or balance, or tranquility, or zen. And Paul's whole experience of persecution from the Jews proves that the Jews themselves thought Christianity's concept of a triune divinity was heretical. It was a capital religious offense. You should be hanged. You should be stoned for believing Jesus 
is the Son of God. And remember, Judaism is the world religion that has the closest relationship to Christianity. Stephen Prothero at Boston College made this argument a few years back in his provocatively titled book, God is Not One. God is Not One, Stephen Prothero said. He was not advocating for polytheism. He was arguing against the popular notion that you can lump all the world religions into the same category as if they're all making the same point about the nature of the religious ultimate, the nature of the human predicament, why aren't we as good as we think we should be, and the solution to the human predicament. What do we do about not being as good as we know we ought to be? If Judaism and Christianity are basically the same, then why did ancient Jews want to murder or at least execute Saul when he converted from Judaism to Christianity? And they're the people that are closest in time to believing what an Orthodox Jew would believe. Not some 21st century religion professor. I mean, that hypothesis has zero explanatory power for the historical data we encounter here in Acts. Saul preached Jesus as the Son of God in the synagogues. Jews did not appreciate it as a complementary perspective on Judaism or as happy, acceptable religious diversity. They condemned it as heresy and would have murdered Saul for it if only they could have caught up to him as he was running away. So Christianity is a definite thing. It's not an indefinite thing. It's defined. It has clear borders. Christianity traffics in truths, not vagaries, not generalities, but specificities. Christianity says yes to some ideas and no to other ideas. It calls this truth and that falsehood. It calls this wisdom and that foolishness. Read Proverbs. It calls this righteousness and that wickedness. It calls this good and that evil. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus called it the narrow way, and he said that only a few will find it. So if you want to make sure that you're one of the few who finds that narrow way, then you cannot believe in every religion or even everything that calls itself Christianity. You have to trust in Jesus as the Son of God and interpret everything else in relation to Him as the center, as the Savior, as God's Son, and as your King. That is Christianity. There is no substitute. One of the personal applications we can draw is that we should trust and praise Jesus then that He is sovereign to convert His enemies. He is sovereign to convert his enemies. Everyone in Damascus was amazed at Saul's transformation. They were so amazed that they could hardly believe it. They, they kind of didn't trust it at first. You are kidding me. This guy who was famous for persecuting Christ is now preaching Christ? This man who was killing Christians is now calling people to become Christians? The guy who arrested Christians is not trying to associate with them. He wants them to hold a new members class for him. This is literally incredible. Even Christians could hardly bring themselves to believe that Christ had converted the man who terrorized them, literally. 
But Jesus did it. So Christian, pray for unlikely conversions. Pray that Jesus would convert that person at work who is most hostile to Christ and the gospel. If Jesus converted Saul, then Jesus can convert even the person that you would vote most likely to kill a Christian. He can convert that person. Jesus has given us Saul then not only for the peace of the early church, but for the prayers of the modern church. He has given us Saul, turned Paul, as a precedent for his ability to answer our prayers in turning even his worst enemies into his best expositors and evangelists. There's also a church application here. Fearing God and not man is the way to numerical growth. Fearing God, not man, is the way to solid, safe, numerical growth. Look there again in verse 31. How was the church multiplying? How did it happen? Well, first and foremost, by walking in the fear of the Lord so that they could enjoy the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So let's not be too concerned about being trendy or think that being cutting edge is the way to numerical growth. Friends, you can draw a crowd doing almost anything. And the more foolish the thing is that you do, the bigger the crowd you can draw. So, the way to numerical growth for a true and faithful church, like this one in Acts, is not by sticking our finger in the air and seeing which way the cultural winds are blowing. That is fear of man. The way to sound, solid, stabilizing numerical growth is fearing God, keeping His commandments, and moving forward in the encouragement of His Spirit that results. It's not rocket science. It's not sociology. It's communion with Christ. It's obedience to Him. And the Spirit's encouragement is necessary for church growth. Let's not ignore the Holy Spirit as if He is optional to our life as a church. He is not optional. The third person of the Trinity is essential to our success as a congregation. We need His wisdom and energy in our own lives, and we need His sanctifying ministry to keep us holy. We need His power, His effectiveness, His life-giving, regenerating, persuading, converting work in the lives of those who hear the gospel from our lips. Otherwise, no one will be converted. We need to pray together for Jesus to pour the Spirit out on us in greater measure for greater boldness and effectiveness. And this comfort of the Holy Spirit, then, is not merely therapeutic or psychological or emotional. It is spiritual empowerment for ministry. It's His strengthening work in our lives and in the lives of others as they hear the gospel from us. So we cannot rely on our own personality or intelligence or emotional IQ or even our own spiritual giftedness. We must have the Spirit 
doing the hidden work of convincing, persuading, sanctifying, or all of our work is going to be ineffective. That is why we pray together on Sunday nights to express our corporate dependence on God in gathered prayer because he tells us, I will not share my glory with another. And if I'm going to glorify myself among you and in you and through you, I'm going to do it because you are dependent on me. I'm going to do it without you mistaking the success as being due to your own goodness or giftedness. I'm going to do it in answer to your prayers so that you know it's me. There's also a relational application here, which is be a Barnabas to a new believer. Be a Barnabas. Barnabas befriended Saul. So Christian, who have you befriended here recently? Or do you just expect everybody to befriend you? Facilitate new friendships for new visitors and members. That's part of what it means to be a good member of a good church, is that you go, you see someone who needs a friend, and maybe you can't be that friend, but maybe you see another person who can be that friend, and you say, you know what? These two guys need to meet each other. These two women need to be friends. They've got a lot in common. And then you facilitate that. That's what Barnabas did. He got to know Saul. And you can get to know other people in this church. Introduce them to others. Help establish Christians not to be afraid of new Christians just because those new Christians are new and inexperienced and seem a little dangerous or are not far removed from their former life of sin. What was so encouraging about Barnabas, well, there's a number of things. He wasn't afraid of Saul. But he also didn't keep Saul to himself. I mean, if, if you really knew who Saul had been, you're Barnabas, you're like, this guy's a leader. This guy is famous. And I could get the credit for being his bestie. And Barnabas doesn't want anything to do with that mentality of kind of being territorial or possessive with Saul or, getting, or using him to get credit. He shares him. Barnabas shared Saul with everybody. Barnabas was not territorial. He befriended Saul in order to introduce him to everyone else so that everyone else could learn to trust and love and respect Saul too. So friend, if you aspire to eldership, being a Barnabas to other people is part of that. You become a relationship facilitator. You start looking out for new people and how you can facilitate incorporating them into other relationships that are not simply you. But you look out for them and you say, you know what, who else could be a good friend to them? And you introduce that and you facilitate that. 
So be a godly Christian friend who facilitates godly Christian friendships, not just with you and other people, but between other people, among other people, and then you step out of the way. And you say, you know what, I want you to have a friendship on your own. I want you to have your own friendship with them. And I'm not going to be jealous of that. And I'm not going to try to micromanage that. I'm going to let you have that friendship. And you be edified by that. It's a big part of how churches grow, both in number and strength. If you want the church to multiply, that's how it happens. You've got a lot of men and women in a church who are facilitating godly relationships among and between other people that are coming in and are new and need to learn who these people are and they need to be, become trusted people as new people in the congregation. Be a Barnabas to a new believer and pray for numerical growth. It happened here in Acts 9 and God told us he would let us ask him for it in Ezekiel 36. Verse 37, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to multiply their people like a flock. And here it is. Christian, when's the last time you prayed that for this church and others like it? Or is your prayer life totally consumed with your problems in this world? God loves to bless his people, but he also loves to bless us in response to our prayers. So let's ask him more faithfully to grow us in both maturity and number and to do good to other churches as well. I think one of the most convicting parts of this passage as I was studying it last week was how the church forgave and accepted a repentant sinner who had sinned grievously against these churches, grievously, hurtfully, painfully. Christian disciples in both Damascus and Jerusalem help the very Saul who hated them so much he was trying to kill them. He wanted to prosecute them for blasphemy in Jerusalem. He wanted to arrest them. He wanted to get them in trouble with the government. But they help him. Why? Because Christ in common covers even the worst of sins. When people repent of their past sins, we need to forgive them, no matter how badly their sins have affected us. Trusting Saul was hard for the churches at first. But the more they saw how repentant Saul was, the more they saw how Saul had changed, the more they saw Saul suffer for Jesus, the more they were convinced we don't have a choice but to forgive him and to help him and to be compassionate for him as he now joins us in suffering for our Christ. And look at all the fruit it bore. We should help persecuted Christians. The Christians in Damascus did not just help the man that used to hate them. They aided and abetted a fugitive of the state. Remember how Paul retold the story again for 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33. It wasn't just religious authorities snooping around for Saul. It was 
political authorities, the governor of Samaria himself, guarding the city of Damascus in order to arrest Saul. The authorities were trying to hem Saul into the city. They had set a perimeter, trying to corner Saul for preaching Christ. But the Christian disciples in Damascus have no qualms of conscience for sneaking Saul out of the city when they know he's on the wrong side of the law because of his preaching. Nobody at First Baptist Damascus is wringing their hands about whether they're being sinfully deceptive by sneaking Paul out of the city under the cover of night, lowering down through a wall, through a hole in the wall in a basket. Nobody's like, uh, I need to pray about this first. They know that that's the right thing to do. When Christians are fleeing state-sponsored persecution because of their Christianity, we can and should try to find ways to help them. We shouldn't feel guilty about that. The early church didn't. Then, of course, there's a wisdom application here, too. Flee persecution when you can, but endure it when you can't. Saul did not insist on staying in Damascus or Jerusalem when he knew that there was a warrant out for his arrest and execution. He wasn't stubborn like that. He fled when he could, especially at the outset, and this is often necessary today for new believers from Muslim or even increasingly Hindu backgrounds. Running is not always wrong. We'll see Paul do this a number of times, going from one city to the next because he and his preaching are rejected and his life is in danger. He was often an itinerant not by choice, but by necessity. It's not wrong or cowardly to take measures so you can avoid wrongful death for being a Christian. But if you cannot avoid it, then you must endure it, and God will strengthen you to do so. Paul later views this whole episode as a badge of honor in 2 Corinthians 11. He starts that whole reminiscence in this way. If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Look at how I started, man. Look at what happened to me. Look at what people did to me. Look at what I was reduced to. Look at what a fool I looked like for Christ. Look at how not in control I was. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul has nothing to hide from this episode. He's not ashamed of it. You know, we tend to lionize the apostles, but by his own admission, Saul was not in command all of the time, not even close. He was acted upon, he was chased, he was saved by other Christians, he was sent away, he was run off, he was let down through a window in a basket for crying out loud, probably in the fetal position curled up and hunched over. Not incredibly masculine. And that's what he got for his faithfulness in preaching Jesus as the Son of God in Christ. If Paul is going to brag, he's going to brag about that stuff. Not about visions or speaking in tongues, not about his strengths, but about his sufferings and his weaknesses because he doesn't want anybody thinking any more of him than they can see or hear in him. He doesn't want to be conceited himself. 
He doesn't want other people to get the wrong idea that his ministry is all about him. It's not all about him. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ's power being made perfect in Paul's weakness, not in Paul's strength. Because Paul knows that when he is weak in himself, that's when he is strong in Christ. So friend, I wonder how you would think or feel if Saul's experience here were yours. How would you think or feel if you had to be let down in a basket through a wall in a city because you preach Christ? How would you testify about that on a Sunday night? Or would you? Would you be embarrassed about it? Would you feel like a failure? Would you hide it or would you own it? Paul announced it. Paul bragged about it. One of the few things he bragged about, not that he was trying to impress people with his suffering, it was the opposite. He was making sure that nobody took him too seriously, least of all himself. Paul took Jesus seriously. He thought very little of himself. And even though he made sure at times that people recognized him as an apostle, he only did that when the authority of the gospel was at stake in the churches he planted. Otherwise, he was like Peter and John, rejoicing to consider, be considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. And of course, it is Jesus himself who converted and transformed Paul to begin with. And Jesus did that not simply for Saul's sake, but to build up his churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And now, Jesus is building his church through Saul's conversion still in Elgin of all places. It's almost too good to be true. Almost. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You converted your worst critic into your greatest preacher You are powerful, you are sovereign, you are real, you are wise, you are compassionate, you are merciful and gracious, you are slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness to those who fear you, just like your Father. Lord, forgive us for trusting too much to our own selves and devices, to our own personality, to our power, to how we feel and think. May we think far less of ourselves and far more of you, Lord Christ. May we speak more of you. May we be more confident in who you are and your relationship to your Heavenly Father. And may our relationship to you be informed by your relationship to your Father and clarify the message of the Gospel from our mouths so that as others can understand what you have done for the salvation of your people and be saved themselves and incorporated into your churches. Do these things for the glory of Jesus Christ, that his name might be magnified in all the earth through us and through other churches just like this one. For Jesus' sake, amen.